Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. When I woke up this morning, it already felt like it was tomorrow. Tomorrow is too late. As we continue to build the University of Tomorrow, walk our hallways, classrooms, and labs, and you can feel the hum of energy created by those discovering their purpose. Today, we are excited to share with you our vision for our new brand. At the University of Alberta, our local ideas translate into global impact. We must transform our collective aspirations into reality today. Every day, we set out to challenge the very notion of time by solving problems that don't exist yet. Well, here's a problem that did exist last October when the University of Alberta released that inspiring video announcing their slick rebranding. They were in the midst of being defunded by the province of Alberta with nearly 20% of their provincial grants slashed since 2019. As a result, tuitions are up by as much as 104%, depending on which program you study. And the University of Alberta is not alone. Post-secondary schools across Alberta are being defunded to the tune of $460 million, and Alberta is not alone. Similar cuts have hit Ontario schools. British Columbia just announced a funding review for all post-secondary institutions. The bottom line is austerity, but the sales pitch is jobs. In April, the Alberta government released a document titled Alberta 2030, Building Skills for Jobs. And while large chunks of money were being taken from universities and colleges in general, smaller chunks of cash were provided to fund high-demand programs, things like nursing, coding, and commerce. The impacts are both ideological and practical, raising questions about what the greater purpose of a university education should be and what specific programs a university or college needs to invest in if they want to keep the lights on. It's called performance-based funding, PBF for short, and it is already being used across the U.S. and in parts of Europe. The idea here is that governments shelling out to universities and colleges should be getting ROI, return on investment. So what does that look like for students? Edmonton-based reporter Omar Salafu has that in a moment. Wait for it. Anita Cardinal is an Indigenous law student at the University of Alberta with a unique academic journey. Okay, so I am an older student, so I'm 45, I have three sons, I have a grandson, and always in the back of my mind, I've always wanted a career in law. It was something that I think I forgot about as I got older when I was quite young. Uh, I had actually I just had an acquaintance of mine who knew me in junior high saw me on Instagram and sent me a really sweet message and she said I don't know 
if you remember me, but I see that you're in law and I thought that you would really appreciate this. And she sent me a screenshot of our yearbook back in junior high. And, you know, sadly, I was never able to buy that yearbook. So I never got to see it because we can afford it. Right. So um, they had my picture, of course. And then it's like, what's your goals? And I said I wanted to be an actress or a lawyer. <laughs> right? So I was just so blown away when I saw that because it reminded me of that hope that I had back then. And sadly enough, as you get older and you start realizing all those barriers, that hope went away. And then I think it was always there, but it was like became almost impossible, like an impossible dream. With support from her family and previous community college education, Anita worked towards her dream legal career by obtaining a paralegal diploma from Grant McEwen University in 2010. Her paralegal work spanned a decade and included legal files that Anita sometimes had a personal connection to. I got to work on the CC Scoop file, the forced sterilization of Indigenous women here in Alberta. My mother is a representative plaintiff, and that was something that I had advocated for because for obvious reasons and all those things started to really you know bring that hope back again that I could and then meeting indigenous lawyers because I had not met indigenous lawyers definitely not growing up not until I think it was in my 30s that I met an indigenous lawyer you know and so I just got inspired by the people around me um and I started to have that confidence that I could do this but there were still so many barriers, right? There were still so many things and mountains that I had to climb in order to, to see that this reality, right? Yeah. To make it my reality. And yes, absolutely, financially, that's a, especially being, you know, my age and having a family, we had mortgage, we had vehicle payments. I applied to law school and I only applied to the University of Alberta because I couldn't afford to go anywhere. So I literally, all my eggs were in one basket. We couldn't afford to move. It was not possible. So it was like U of A, that was my one chance. So if I didn't get accepted, I would not be in law school right now. Thankfully, in 2019, Anita's dream became a reality when she was accepted into the University of Alberta. When I spoke with Anita, she was just wrapping up exams for the spring. But what was an affordable education for Anita in 2019 might not be for the next person looking to pursue this dream. Next fall, tuition at the University of Alberta is rising by nearly 30% for new students, a difference of more than 3,000 annually. Alberta is at the forefront of several provinces radically changing how they fund post-secondary education, with deep budget cuts across many universities and colleges. Universities across Alberta have lost $460 million in their annual provincial funding grants since the UCP formed government in 2019. And the largest university in the province, the University of Alberta, lost $200 million of base funding over three years and has undergone radical academic restructuring from a multiple faculty model into a smaller college model, introduced mass staff layoffs and year-over-year -year tuition increases. Students across the province are now burdened with filling the hole left behind by provincial funding cuts. This year alone, students are projected to pay $150 million more in tuition, according to the Alberta Union of Public Employees. 
So in the end, we're faced with three choices, faced with incurring a debt that you would be stuck paying for too long. And for those who with families like myself or future families will essentially put them under a financial strain that will last for years. Uh, or on the other hand, not even being able to attend law school or go elsewhere for those who can, uh, and the majority will go elsewhere. The university tried to calm opposition to tuition increases by pointing students to increased bursaries, scholarships, and loan options. But that really didn't stop the backlash. The $3,000 increase law students are facing this fall is actually an improvement. The tuition hike that was originally proposed was supposed to be 45%, or about $5,000 more per year. But after a group of students, including Anita, spoke out about the increase, it was lowered. So banking on potential bursaries that most students are not even aware of before they apply to law school is not feasible. It makes no sense. So yes, there is now um, more bursaries that are being created and it's not going to be all merit-based, but it's still, you can't, you can't rely on those. You don't know how much you're going to get, when you're going to get it, how that's going to help you. Students, however, are not the only ones paying for these cuts. So I'm going to ask a lot of you when we read that text. I'm going to push you to think about... On the other side of the river in Edmonton, students at Concordia are also in their final days of their semester. Canadians' colonial policies that have for years... Reginald Weeb is who you're hearing right now as he teaches English 384, Contemporary Canadian Literature at Concordia University. In an academic market that's clouded by budget cuts, Reg sometimes views his opportunity to teach English as a miracle, really. It felt to me when this job came open and it was in my field and in my city, it felt like winning the lottery. The academic job market is incredibly competitive. It varies from discipline to discipline. In English, it, there are more grads than there are jobs. And so this has resulted in a lot of institutions relying heavily on sessional labor. They have uh, a workforce available that they can underpay. And I feel very grateful to have a job. I feel supported by my colleagues very much. But I think the system in which we rely predominantly on sessionals to do a lot of the teaching is a sort of a um, fundamentally unjust system. The use of sessional instructors, stagnant salaries, and workload were all issues raised by the Faculty Association at Concordia in their last round of collective bargaining with the university. After negotiations stalled and asks were consistently unmet by the university, the faculty at Concordia called a formal strike, making history as the first ever faculty strike in Alberta. The faculty took to the picket line earlier this year on January 4th with the cruel luck of coinciding with a cold snap in Edmonton that dropped temperatures to a bone-chilling minus 40. In my context, I teach English courses, so we're, we're capped at 30 students, but that means 120 students a semester. So that's, you know, 120 students submitting essays twice a year, so hundreds of essays. And it also means about three hours of course prep per one hour of teaching. So that's about three hours of prep and one hour of teaching for every class. The consequences of heavy workloads on professors was studied in 2019 by a University of Manitoba researcher. In her interview-based research, the study found that the four major factors that contributed to workload creep were, quote, a changing academic climate from collegial academic leadership to governance and control, accountability and audit processes, surveillance and control, 
and resulting never-ending tasks. So if I'm teaching uh, four classes, that's four hours of teaching a week, plus three hours per class, which puts me doing approximately 40 hours a week of work just at the teaching level. That's before grading, that's before doing any service. We serve on committees and we, we assist um, students informally. We help our colleagues informally in addition to formal service commitments. And so then that means that our research load almost fell entirely into the summers, which are often described as periods of recuperation. And a system where you require recuperation from your job is not a system that's really built sustainably. Despite the fact that we would continue to offer new, less ambitious salary proposals, we kept lowering our salary requests. There was no movement, and so a strike was unfortunately inevitable. We were on strike for uh, 10 days. Uh, the first week was in sub-minus 30 temperatures. We were picketing in very frigid weather, but the strike was an incredibly powerful moment for us as a, as a faculty association and as a community. One of the things we discovered was that our individual pain and stress was shared. Uh, with a 4-4 teaching load, um, getting through the work week is a challenge. Managing our workloads, meeting our students' needs, meeting our own needs becomes very difficult. And then so we don't have time to realize how the rest of our colleagues are feeling. We discovered that we were all feeling the same things. And we found unity and purpose together. It was, it was, um, it was inspiring. The historic strike at Concordia was successful. So that means that professors will now have a reduced workload and a small salary increase. The gains made in the collective agreement were small steps towards ameliorating our pay scale compared to our colleagues and in other institutions in the province and across the country. One of the things about picketing in, in minus 40 with the wind chill is that you must be resolved. If you're not serious, if you do not believe what you're doing, then you would not be torturing yourself this way. And I, I sincerely believe that our administration has Concordia's best interests at heart, but we had a fundamental disconnect on how those would be best served, how our students would be best served. And we believed strongly enough that we went outside in minus 40 to show our students and their community members how much we value the institution and how important it was to fight for it. But again, the budget cuts didn't stop at students. And it didn't stop at professors at institutions across the province. Administrative staff worked to support students and create academic environments for the benefit of students and professors. And admin are often the lowest paid workers on campus. So when cuts come down from administration, support staff are often the first to go. Since 2019, the University of Alberta has cut 2,000 administrative jobs and privatized cleaning staff contracts. The University of Calgary has also targeted its caretaker workers by removing a $2.50 night shift premium. The premium was in place to acknowledge the often financial hardship involved with shift work that can span from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. I worked it out that that $2.50 premium that we got for the evening and night shifts equaled roughly $4,875. Dave Lamont is a caretaker at the University of Calgary who works in facility maintenance. $4,875 coming off of my yearly pay. That's a really big deal for somebody who's already sitting at the bottom. You know, I have my house, 
I have roommates. I have to increase their rent because I can't cover my whole responsibility with the house anymore. You know, gas is going up like crazy. Insurance is going up like crazy. Groceries, inflation is just out of control. And it just feels like this is the worst time to cut the people at the bottom. I understand that it's not going to work well for everybody, but the people at the bottom are the ones who are going to suffer. You, you can cut the middle and, and they might lose aspects of their lifestyle, but you could literally end up with people having to choose between heating your house and eating. So for me, the money was a big deal. And to be honest, I'm having to consider looking for another job at this point because that $2.50 made all the difference. The pandemic really wasn't a break for caretakers. They spent the better part of two years on the front line with backpack sprayers, hazmat suits, and all of this without any hazard pay. Caretakers at UFC rallied this spring against budget cuts and the removal of their shift differential. At the rally, signs read, quote, We took care of you. Why didn't you care about us? Dave was at the rally and his experience meeting with workers was surprisingly similar to the newfound solidarity Reg felt at Concordia Strike. I did attend the rally. My shift at that time was from 4 p.m. until midnight. I decided to show up at noon, and I spent the whole four hours walking in front of the administration building and, and, and chanting and wearing the sign that had uh, various facts on it. I think it did what it needed to do. It brought our issue to a more visible group and just let them know that there is a problem. Like, and, you know, we're not going to sit there and be quiet and just take it. We want people to know that we're going to get out there and, and speak our mind and stuff like that. And, and it gives voice to the people who weren't able to show up as well. Because again, a lot of these people have lifestyles that just don't mix with showing up for that sort of a rally. They have two jobs or three jobs or children or, you know, a parent at home to take care of or what have you. So yeah, I thought the, the rally was great and I, I had a great time. Ultimately, these ripple effects felt throughout post-secondary institutions are a part of a systemic change the United Conservative Party in Alberta is pursuing in how higher education is funded. They've made cuts to general operating budgets while funding certain projects at particular schools. For example, a $23 million investment in a quantum physics hub headquartered at the University of Calgary, or $85 million in funding targeted only at certain programs, including nursing, engineering, and aviation. This is all part of a departure from how post-secondary funding has normally been handled, which is to say that general funding was provided based on enrollment numbers, and it was largely left to schools to figure out how they would spend that money. Additionally, the UCP have begun implementing something called performance-based funding, which pegs university funding to metrics like course completion, graduation rates, and graduate salaries. It's also being implemented in other provinces, but it was originally pioneered in the U.S., first in Tennessee and Ohio, 
but the practice is becoming more widely recognized internationally, including in the United Kingdom. The effectiveness of metrics funding has not really been well researched, but the information that we do have shows largely negative outcomes for universities that are now faced with lower funding and bloated administrative costs to manage performance tracking. And it's not just student funding that's being tied to these new metrics. In the UK, for example, research funding, more than a billion dollars worth, is tied to a performance-based model. The Research Excellence Framework, or REF, assesses research quality and measures it on a one-to-four scale, with four meaning that a university has world-class research that is original, significant, and rigorous. This framework has been criticized, though, for its bloated administrative costs and for how the system defines a researcher's impact. It's been found to narrow the kind of research done for the sake of funding. The governments of Alberta and Ontario have both already pushed to introduce performance-based funding metrics, tying as much as 60% of a school's total operating funds to these programs in Ontario. But the pandemic did cause the provincial governments to pause and temporarily scale back this funding model's implementation. But it has only been a pause, not a course change. As an English professor at the University of Manitoba, Brenda Austin-Smith has seen government policy transform education in her 30 years of experience as an academic union activist. She pointed out that universities are already subjected to extensive fiscal accountability through financial reports, government audits, and regulations on school spending. So we already have accountability measures. So these kinds of performance-based funding ideas coming from provincial governments kind of present themselves as if there's nothing going on in terms of accountability at universities, which isn't true. And the second thing they do is they come up with measures that we have no control over. So we can't affect them. Two of the biggest are the performance is supposed to be based on the number of students who successfully graduated. I can't control that. (laughs) And how much money they made after they graduated. I can't control that either. So it sets impossible targets, which sets you up for inevitable failure and then conceivably punishes you for not being able to meet targets that are outside your power to meet. So that's what I mean when I call it disingenuous. Our post-secondary education system today has a diversity of options and institutions. And while access is still limited by cost and other barriers, students across Canada can still benefit from schools that are heavily backed by government funds. This wasn't really always the case, and Brenda really worries that we might slide back to an educational past that's marked by exclusivity. A little over 100 years ago, in the early part of the 20th century, before the First World War, the idea of going to university was available only to the very rich and certainly the very white, and the very well-connected, and to men. Like, not a lot of women went to university. And you went to university because your parents or your family could afford it. And what we saw coming out of, particularly after the Second World War, was an opening up of public institutions 
and a recognition that education was becoming more of a right, that you can't participate fully in civic life and in society without an education. You deserve an education and it should be cheap, ideally free. And then what we saw in the 1970s in Canada and elsewhere was what we called massification, which was really the setup of colleges and universities from coast to coast in big cities and small towns in order to provide that access. So you didn't have to take a plane to Toronto and rent an apartment in order to get an undergraduate degree. You could walk down the hill. That's amazing. And that was accessibility. And what we're seeing in the, uh, really in the last few years, particularly since the rollout of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, right, of, of, the, of the commission, is a call for more openness, more accessibility, particularly to Indigenous learners. Those calls for opening up the system, making it more accessible, making it cheaper, is happening at the very same moment that provincial governments in particular are stripping money from the system, making it more and more private. And if we make it private, we're going back 100 years. Representatives from the provincial government have stated that the intent of this change in funding is done so that post-secondary education aligns with the job market. It's why they've made recent investments in chosen programs like aviation and finance technology that align with rising market interests and increases the number of seats available to students. For Brenda, though, this is a concerning approach to education. So my concern is narrowing, telling people what they can't study, telling students what they can't know. And my other example, I guess, is who knew that in the last five years we would suddenly think, huh, time to pick up a couple of books on what led to the Second World War, given what's going on um, with Russia and Ukraine. Who would have thought that? So can you imagine a provincial government that made a decision and said, you know what, I don't think we need Eastern European history anymore, and stopped funding it. Where would we be now? So we can't know as a society, we don't know what we're gonna need to know in the future. That's why we teach history, because nobody knows what they're going to need 25 or 50 years from now. But you educate and share because it's part of our shared history. So that's my concern. We lose access to knowledge. For students not studying in market-relevant programs, these funding changes will mean tuition increases and likely a decline in the quality of education they receive. For example, this spring, the University of Alberta announced its plan to close its entire humanities building for, quote, space optimization. Now more than ever in Alberta, the quality of your education seems like it will be dictated by the job market instead of curiosity or a thirst for knowledge. For Nita Cardinal, the next step of her law career is entering a future that might not be possible for students after her. Well, it starts with admissions, right? It starts, uh, so where you decide to go to law school, uh, why you decide to go there, and is it a welcoming space? Is it a space that's going to help you succeed rather than create more barriers for you now and in the future? 
and Uve A has the potential to be able to do that. And, you know, I am an advocate for U of A. I had a great three years here. So I want to see them do the very best to make sure that people from all backgrounds can succeed here. Coming up, my interview with Alberta's Minister of Higher Education. Maybe um, you could start by just introducing yourself and letting our listeners know what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Dimitri Nikolaides, and I'm the MLA for Calgary Bow and Minister of Advanced Education. I'm looking at the changes that university students are facing in Alberta, and some of this looks really drastic. They're facing tuition hikes. Some of these are really alarming, like a 104.5% increase for graduate psychology students, uh, undergrad students facing as much as 44% tuition increase. Where are students supposed to come up with this money? How are they supposed to deal with this? First and foremost, all students currently in those programs are grandfathered in. So it uh, cannot apply to students that are currently in the program, only to new students who are starting that program. As well, once the increases have been completed, in the vast majority of circumstances, those programs still, from a cost perspective, remain below or near the national average. It's also important that we do take additional steps to bolster student aid and student financial assistance. So one of the things that I looked at specifically was to see whether the institution was planning on using some proceeds of the new revenue to support student assistance and student financial assistance more specifically. And they all were. And as well, the government of Alberta is also increasing what we're providing in student financial assistance. We're providing $12 million over three years to support our existing scholarships and $15 million over three years to create a new bursary for low-income students. Because I think we can all agree that financial barriers should not limit somebody's ability and potential to be able to access post-secondary education. It shouldn't be a barrier, but in some cases it is. We spoke to an Indigenous law student. New law students are facing an increase of 29% this fall. The student we spoke with is really concerned specifically about the impact of these hikes on diverse students who have gone through quite a bit to get to the point where they're accepted and ready to embark on things like law school. Are the increases in student aid or scholarships enough to cover the changes that students like that are, are now facing? We do survey and talk with students regularly. We just completed a survey very recently, whether students are able to meet their financial obligations with what student aid offers. The vast majority of students have indicated that they are able and what, what is being offered through student aid is sufficient to help students. But of course, we need to continue to look at that. Taking a bird's eye view at this, I don't want to give people a false impression. I think it's all well and good to point to improvements in the programs and to some of these measures like student aid. But we're not just talking about a one-year thing here. Like My understanding is that these cuts have, have been happening year over year. A CBC investigation found last summer that over the two prior years, the University of Alberta had its provincial base operating funding slashed by 19%, University of Calgary 12%. Like, how long can this sustain? It's one thing to say financial barriers shouldn't get in the way, but these cuts are increasing financial barriers and they're happening year over year. Are you done yet or, or are more cuts coming? As a government, 
we set out with an ambitious goal and target to, to balance the budget. We naturally had to take a very close look at funding that was provided to post-secondary institutions. And what we saw was that post-secondary institutions in Alberta were receiving disproportionately higher funding amounts from the provincial government than was the case in other provinces. So we had to make some corrections. We're seeing new investment. Uh, we are starting to reinvest into uh, the post-secondary system. In fact, we have recently rolled out $171 million over three years to create 10,000 additional spaces in our post-secondary institutions. So I think we've made some of the difficult decisions, made some of the corrections, and we're now in a position where we can start to expand capacity and make sure that everybody has an opportunity to attend post-secondary. Well, not everybody. I mean, that $171 million is very targeted. Certain programs are receiving extra help while the rest are getting cut. So energy, healthcare, aviation, finance, finance technology, computer science, information technology. It seems like this isn't just belt tightening. There's a philosophical shift in how the province wants to spend money on post-secondary. It seems like you're targeted towards like vocational training. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, and I've heard that characterization. And just for clarity, so the government of Alberta does not fund specific programs. Funding is provided to post-secondary institution as a block operating grant. We don't provide any details as to how the institutions should use those operating dollars, except that they're to be used for operations. Over the past few years, we've made some reductions to the operating grant that we've provided to institutions. With the $171 million, what we are seeing and the intent behind this, there are many programs where there are very high wait lists. There's incredible demand. Like I'll give you an example, like in veterinary medicine, we hear a lot of concern that there are not enough vets in the province and that we need more vets. Yet at the same time, the program is very limited in their capacity. They receive more applications at the University of Calgary than they're able to accommodate due to capacity. So you start to scratch your head and wonder, we have more students who want to go into this program and there's demand from the labor market, but we're not able to meet that demand because of capacity limitations. So I don't agree with the premise that you know we're, we're trying to prioritize some programs. I'm not sure you're actually disagreeing because if it's not just about the wait list, but if it's about the probability of getting a job of what the market demands, that is a philosophical shift from you know education for its own sake. I'm aware your government has announced that you're investing $23 million in a quantum physics hub. I'm not aware of any similar investment in anything in the humanities. Before even criticizing that, I think we just need to recognize that there is a shift in thinking about what education is for and why the province would pay for it and what it wants to prioritize. It, it does seem like vocation is on your list of criteria for directing these funds. Well, the broad view and the lens that, you know, through which uh, I view post-secondary education and that I think students view post-secondary education as well is from a career-oriented standpoint. I think it's important that we have job-ready graduates and when our students finish whatever program they're in, they'll need to begin their career in whatever occupation that is. And so I think the, you know, there is a focus indeed, and that focus is on ensuring we have job-ready graduates, including in the arts. You know, I'm an arts um, graduate myself, I provide a lot of very valuable skills that are needed in the economy in terms of communication and critical thinking and, and other skills. 
so uh, indeed, I think it's very important for us to look at post-secondary education through the lens of, of jobs and, and job-ready graduates. It's important to our economy, but more importantly, it's critical to our students. Maybe we could even expand our focus beyond just what your government is doing with these specific cuts. You and I both, having done humanities programs for our undergrad, maybe benefited from a prior conception of what university is for, where you could kind of just f around for a few years and you'd not know what you're going to do. Even if you are there with the hope of getting like a good job afterwards, for many, many decades, we sort of made people go through learning philosophy, history, literature. Maybe this is incredibly outdated, but I feel like I benefited from not going to, you know, four years of journalism school right out of high school. And I prefer politicians who, like yourself, have not just been doing politics since, you know, student government and journalists who have specific knowledge about other topics before they focus on vocational training. That was the tradition for many, many years. It seems like your government is not alone. There are conservative governments across North America who are really shifting post-secondary education to a job-focused outcome and making funding contingent on that. Is that not losing something really valuable? Yeah, you know, I certainly agree. There's, there's uh, an, an incredible part of the post-secondary experience is you know, being able to dip your toe into a variety of different subjects and topics. And, and that still remains the case. You know, I remember uh, during my time at the University of Calgary, I graduated with a a Bachelor of Arts in History and International Relations. But in order to, to convocate, in order to finalize my program, the requirement of the university was that I had completed certain courses or certain level of credit in science in other areas that weren't necessarily related to political science, history, or international relations. But, you know, the, the focus on labor market outcomes, for lack of a better term, there is uh, a hue and cry, maybe to be expected from universities in Alberta, but this is common among, you know, from the academy everywhere, that when you tie funding to outcomes, when you introduce performance-based funding metrics, you're fundamentally changing the relationship, the independence of the academy, and policy dictates outcomes. That's going to change what's invested in, how the whole thing runs. Are you worried about that? So... We are making some changes to how funding is, is um, provided to post-secondary institutions. As I mentioned before, government used to just provide a block grant, an operating grant, and say, you know, here's your operating grant uh, and, and use it as you need to finance your operations. And we're changing that to a performance-based funding model, whereby the government will provide the institutions with their operating grant and establish targets against key metrics in discussion, this isn't a punitive action, in discussion with post-secondary institutions to have clarity on what the return is for that investment. That's, that's a little cold and, you know, it sounds like a very transactional way of thinking about education, re return on investment in some kind of immediately measurable kind of model. Well, it's, it's a very important investment. I mean, it's, it's, it's $2 billion in the government of Alberta. It's $2 billion that the government provides to our post-secondary institutions. And it's there's no question 
it's an incredible and worthwhile investment. But I think it's a much deeper issue of how accountability is structured in the post-secondary system and how governance is structured. And I'm not sure that we have the best approach. So for example, you know, funding is provided from an operating standpoint, and then the government of Alberta appoints the board chair, appoints the majority of board members, provides a mandate to the institution, and essentially, you know, provides them direction and expectations through the board governance. But I'm not so convinced that's the best model. I prefer a model where we actually relax some of those controls. We don't get involved in appointing the board members, the board chair, other levels of that detail, but we simply provide funding and we set very clear high-level expectations and outcomes through a performance-based model and let them do their thing, let them employ their expertise and achieve those outcomes. Let me climb out of my ivory tower and, and off my soapbox and, and, and approach this a bit more pragmatically. Alberta has been shedding young people. There are two separate studies that have found that more young people are leaving Alberta than moving into the province uh, for the first time since the late 80s. You've brought up many times in this conversation that Alberta has been offering tuitions at much lower than the average, than the national average. But as an, a means of attracting people to the province, aren't you working against that interest? Uh, no, I, I don't believe so. There's multiple pieces. And when we talk about retaining and keeping young people, th there's no question that we have to do that. And we have to keep the best and brightest here. I think there's multiple pieces to that. Yes, there's attraction. How do you encourage young individuals to leave other provinces and say, I want to go study at the University of Alberta, or I want to go to Calgary? I think a lot of that has to do with reputation and ranking and quality. What we do know, and uh, what uh, experts in, in, the, in my department have told me is that, you know, students will move to other provinces, to other jurisdictions, pay higher tuition, and make all those changes if they truly believe they're getting a higher quality experience. I mean, you're right. There are some students who will pay more if they believe they're getting higher quality. And those are students who can afford to pay more. So I think one question here is, which kind of students? are you trying to attract and retain? I, I don't believe that we're, we're focusing on any particular kind of student. Uh, again, you know, our, for me, when we talk about tuition levels, it's very important that our tuition levels are competitive. We have uh, very competitive tuition rates. You know, I think there's, there's great opportunity for so many young people to look at coming to Alberta and, and studying here, getting a high-quality ed education at comparable uh, rates in an incredible province, and then having great prospects and outcomes at the end of it. And I think Alberta provides them with those opportunities. Minister, I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk with me today. Of course. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. That's your Canada Land. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLand.com. This episode was reported by Omar Salafu. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca.
Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Julian McKenzie, hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Julian is a staff editor at The Athletic and a podcaster. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm Emily Nicola, sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Today, we are talking about the crypto craze and crash. Welcome to Shortcuts, when we talk about the news. Let's uh, talk about the... Uh crypto crash. Absolutely. And I think calling it a crypto crash is pretty apt right now. Uh, seeing Bitcoin fall well below its peak prices during the pandemic. The largest economy on earth is financial services. I think crypto will be the 12th sector of the economy within 10 years because it adds so much liquidity, so much productivity, so much transparency, so much auditability. It's so much better than what we're doing right now. That was a clip from the Financial Post and Kevin O'Leary. So Julian... We're going to be talking about crypto for a little bit. There's a lot of bad crypto news that are happening. And still, I feel like a lot of us are having a hard time figuring out what that actually means. Let's name the elephant in the room. I think a lot of us are still uncomfortable talking about crypto period, whether it's going good or bad. First of all, what are your personal, I want to say feelings, but how do you approach any conversation on cryptocurrency at this point? I... I'm, I'm glad you we were acknowledging the elephant in the room because when I see cryptocurrency, I'm like, ah, I don't know what this means. I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely just don't know. I just, I'm like, I, I know friends who are into it. They're into NFTs. They're into that sort of stuff. No judgment. It's cool if you're able to, to get money off of that. That's great. I just... I, I guess maybe it's the journalist thing where like you see math and then you get really confused and it's money. So you get even <laughs> more tense about that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I don't really have any general feelings about cryptocurrency. It is interesting to see where it is at right now. But yeah, I just I just don't have general thoughts on cryptocurrency. I don't. Okay, but you know that it's been crashing. Yes, that that I've seen. I've seen that for sure. Okay, so I feel like that's where most Kenyans who don't know a lot about crypto are at. They know maybe two things. They know first that crypto is not doing well right now. That's one thing that has been talked about and I think would reach people beyond the crypto bubble. And then the second thing that they would know is that Pierre Poliev is a person that just loves to talk about crypto and says that crypto is amazing. If you are in Alberta, Maybe you've heard as well about your own provincial government sharing a lot of optimism around cryptocurrency a couple of months back, even trying to invest in having some industries that are linked to the crypto industry, basically going into Alberta, trying to make Alberta a hub for the cryptocurrency sector is also something something that happened. Crypto has had boom, now it's crashing. From a journalistic standpoint, the question that I'm asking myself is, first of all, are 
most of us literate enough in cryptocurrency to have <laughs> a responsible coverage of this? Are people educated enough on the risk that investing in crypto implies? Have basically journalism or economic journalism done enough of a good work to make sure that general ordinary Canadians that have lost a lot of money in crypto in the last months are were actually as informed as possible in terms of the risk that they were taking? I can't imagine there are too many of us journalists who are up to date on every single thing to do with cryptocurrency, right? Because it feels as if there's yeah. so many of them coming up. Maybe if you have a general understanding of how like the blockchain works, I guess, then then yeah. But like with, with all the different types of cryptocurrency that comes up, like we're long past the days of like Dogecoin. Yeah, I, I don't know how you could seriously be up on every single thing to, to do with it. But also just looking at how it's at this point now where it's it's at a bit it's at a crash. Like it, I guess it's just like with everything else, if you're if you're putting in money into stocks or whatever, there's a risk that comes with it. And seeing people and hearing stories of people who have put in significant amounts of money into cryptocurrency, and now they're at a point where they are not making back some of that money they thought they'd win. Like it's fascinating. It's not just the fact that political people or governments were so gung ho on making this like a thing. This is something that like celebrities and even at certain athletes at a certain point were were bigging up and and were were saying was a was a massive thing. The four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. I can't tell you everything. But if you want to make history, you gotta call your own shots. It's not to, to dump on it and say, like, hey, you know what? Like, you know, it's completely done forever. Maybe something does happen where it does shoot back up. But like, I think one reason why so many people were were enamored with it, and we were starting to see like Wealth Simple ads on like Hockey Night in Canada for it was just because of the people who were throwing their name behind it. And and yeah, I don't know if enough people were, you know, this is even just going beyond journalists, if people were able to firmly, you know, educate themselves on this, partly because of the people who were endorsing it. Yeah, that's the thing. And those endorsements are made public and people learn about those endorsements sometimes directly through social media. And sometimes it's also because those endorsements are being reported on. You know, crypto has, has crashed in the past. When I look at just Bitcoin itself, it's, it's crashed. I think it's eighth crash that, that it's having right now over over the last decade. So it's a thing that happens. And I'm just wondering, you know, now that it's down, obviously hindsight is 2020. It's maybe e a little bit easy to look back at pieces that were written where people were just writing about how would it be the government of Alberta or how, you know, Pia Podiev or some, some of the people were talking about crypto and just writing it as, well, this person is saying that crypto is great, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of context in certain pieces around the, the risk of it. I'm just wondering about that. You know, where is the room for us to be writing about this in the future in a way that acknowledges the risks rather than just just write the news and not give people context on, on the history of that and what that actually is so that more people get educated on it. Do you think that's a fair part of criticism or do you think I'm just asking for too much? No, I, I my next question to that, and I don't know if it's the right question to ask, is at the time when we were writing these stories of cryptocurrency as glowingly as we, we had it, did we know 
the risks were as they were. Maybe we did. If they did, then we definitely should have. But I, I also wonder mm-hmm. if a lot of those people writing stories like that or right. just generally, we didn't really know that it would get down to a point where it would crash. I think if people anticipated that because so many people were getting into it, maybe some of the value would dip. But I, I think definitely in hindsight, like, absolutely, it would have been good for us to just collectively us to acknowledge these risks. And I think now if you're talking about cryptocurrency, if it, even if it does go on an upswing. Yeah, the responsible thing to do is is to acknowledge that, you know, there is some risk that comes with going all in on cryptocurrency. I think there's that's something yeah. you should definitely acknowledge. Yeah, there's definitely some currencies that have crashed in the past and some of them have gone up and down, but it's just like having that kind of history nearby when you're making those decisions to invest or not would, would be useful. But at the same time, and that's the other question that I have on, on what's going on is whether people who, and I'm just going to make a broad generalization, right? But I feel like there's a there is a crowd of people who have been more interested in crypto and that that crowd overlaps all of the time with people who don't trust the mainstream media and, you know, financial institutions. That's why they're into it in the first place. They're looking for alternatives to what, you know, old school, you know, their grandpa kind of economists would have advised them to do. And so I feel like sometimes it's kind of pointless. I don't even know if warning against crypto in the media <laughs> would actually, or, or, you know, making sure that people are as informed about it as they could in traditional media would sometimes deter actually some of the people who've been investing in it the most, because at least part of that crowd is also people who just don't trust the mainstream. That's definitely part of that crowd that's definitely behind, for example, the Pierre Polyev campaign. There's an overlap between his supporters and and people who don't trust, you know, traditional institutions. And so I don't even know if trying to do a better job of educating the public in terms of economic journalism is actually reaching the target audience. I think as long as entities we deem to just be reputable regardless of whatever mainstream media outlets they they look at as long as those people continue to in, endorse that or, or nfts or mm-hmm. anything like that like that's still going to go on like literally as we're talking about this right now a report surfaced from uh, tsn's darren dreger that the national hockey league may or may not be having some agreement over nfts like they may have something in the works with that and like if you're a hockey fan and you're into that like yeah you're gonna get excited about it so I, I think we definitely need to provide those risks. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are just going to make their own conclusions about these sorts of things right. and they're going to buy into it. I mean, at the end of the day, you can we can provide the risks all we want. But if you want to put your money into NFTs or Bitcoin, that's it's up to them. Yeah, I even saw this piece in the Globe and Mail from 10 days ago titled Now That Bitcoin Is Dead Again Is a Time to Buy. Like literally, <laughs> basically advocating for the fact that because the value is, is low now, it's probably going to pick up again anytime soon. So now would actually be a good time to invest. So I feel like even when it's not doing great, there's some people who are going to, I don't want to say that it's religious, but there's there's people who, who believe in it so much that regardless of what it's actually doing, they're, they're going to be they're going to be willing for to to go into uh, another ride. The other thing that I wanted to maybe have your thoughts on, when you do an analysis of the media coverage of crypto in Canada, it's really interesting that it's really hard to find the name of Pierre Polyev not linked to any crypto news. So basically, because if crypto's doing good, it helps the Polyev campaign because he's been advocating for it so much. But even if it's 
plunging, then people are like, okay, so what does it do to the Pierre Polyev campaign? So basically, regardless of what happens with crypto, like he gets some publicity, good or bad, or he gets some sort of a name recognition on his own campaign because he's managed to link himself to one issue so much that now it's really hard, at least in this country, to talk about one without talking about the other automatically. I would just imagine that maybe because he's tied himself to that horse of cryptocurrency, that for him to just kind of detach himself from it might also reflect kind of badly on him. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. When it's high, there's a lot of excitement and people talking about it in terms of opportunities, including people in government, but especially some journalists as well. And then if it crashes, then there's a whole bunch of pieces that sound like a big I told you so. And then there's not a lot of analysis as to why and what are the risks if it does pick up again. Like I'm not sure where we're really learning from that cycle. So I'm personally feeling like there is a, I don't want to necessarily say a middle ground missing, but but some sort of a more in-depth analysis that's actually going to be accessible to people who are scared of numbers, uh, which is, I think, a lot of us. And to be able to understand what's the bigger story behind the gimmicky maybe aspect of it. I don't know how much of whatever development goes on with crypto if it does upswing, how much that might influence my thinking of it, or if I think, hey, if it's going to go up, is it time to buy? I'm still, Emily, I'm, I'm still kind of scared. I'm still probably just going to stand on the <laughs> sideline, just like, you know what, man, if you guys are into this stuff, if people just you guys are into it, that's on you guys. I'm just going to stick with putting my money in a bank. Well, I prefer actual roller coasters than, than to the one of the markets. That is true. <laughs> uh, me too. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thank you for joining me. We are obviously on Twitter at CanadaLand and you can email jesse at jesse at CanadaLand.com for any feedback that you want to give. He reads everything that you send or so he tells. <laughs> Where can people find you, Julian? I'm on Twitter at JKA McKenzie and McKenzie is spelled M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. I am a staff editor for The Athletic, but I occasionally write for the website as well. So you can check out my work there and uh, I podcast for a whole bunch of different places. So subscribe to The Chris Johnston Show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Zone Time uh, through the Yahoo Sports Hockey podcast uh, feed. Be sure to check out those shows and uh, yeah, check me out. Um, people can also find me on Twitter at Emily underscore NI. And I'm also at Emily at Kenneland.com as well if you want to write to me directly. This episode is produced by Eviva Lessard with additional production by Tristan Capacchioni. Our managing editor is Kieran Househorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Thank you for supporting Canada Land.